The Consul is a book that was needed to have been written. This might, this might sound cliched, but the story, and indeed stories, of how the Australian government, not just DFAT, responds to distressing situations, whether impacting an individual or a large group of Australians and their families, is not and are not well known. And they deserve to be, in my mind. Even for people who have had experience, either being a consular first responder or as an impacted Australian overseas, thus becoming a consular case, and perhaps a bit unusually, I have been both. <laughs> the book provides a great and necessary insight into not just about the very human stories behind some of the tragic things that have impacted Australians overseas, but also the political and policy rationales of, of how these incidents were managed by the government of the day. If I've convinced you the book needed to be written, then, in my estimation, there hardly could have been another person as equipped as Ian Kemish to give it a red-hot go. This he has done. Ian spent 25 years in DFAT, serving in Brunei, another common pit stop in our journeys, Ian. Austria, as ambassador to Germany and as high commissioner to Papua New Guinea. For a period of about five years, from the early 2000s, he had direct or indirect responsibility for Australia's consular service during a time of very significant incidents, including September 11 and the Bali bombings. He has put together a sublime account of Australia's consular service, mostly as he lived it, but also as an ex expert observer of key events and crises after he left his consular management roles and indeed after he left DFAT. I am a former DFAT officer. I know quite a few people of the people and the storylines in this book. And as noted before, I did some consular work in my 15-year career in DFAT. You would expect me to be drawn to the book, but I'm convinced it is a work that many Australians and beyond would enjoy, whether they are interested in government, foreign affairs, or just human interest stories. Or they are practitioners in the business of extracting people from difficult situations. And I do have some colleagues from the mining and oil and gas industry here who have done exactly that. Tonight's discussion will be in three parts. Firstly, Ian will have the floor for about 20 minutes to tell us the background to the work, the why and the how. He and I will then have a discussion to delve a bit deeper into aspects of the work, again for roughly 20 minutes. And this will leave us for about 20 minutes for what I hope to be a very participative Q&A session with you, the audience. Hi, Ian. This is not Julia. It is the AIA. You have the floor. Thank you so much, Brendan. Evening, everybody. It's really great to be here. Um, really feel among friends tonight. Lots of people I know, um, lots of people uh, with whom we go a long way back. Um, 
But let me say, first of all, that it really is a privilege to join you on the land of the Wajuk people. Wajuk people. And I join Brendan in acknowledging and respecting their custodianship. Thanks to the AAA and to Brendan Augustine. Brendan and I do indeed go a long way back. Um, I think he could have gone all the way to the top of DFAT if Perth and the private sector had not called him home. He's made a real success of his post-DFAT career and Canberra's loss has been Perth's gain. It's also a true honour to be in the company again of Sue Boyd, um, such a trailblazer, Sue, for women in diplomacy. Um, uh, someone I think of, if I may say it, as my senior and my better. I wouldn't be crass enough to say elder, but my senior and my better. Sue so, so has been an inspiration to many of us, including the outstanding group of women who are now at <coughs> pardon me, senior levels in DFAT. Sally Dawkins, who's here, the, the head of the DFAT office in Perth, is about as good as an example as you'll find of that group of people. <coughs> I've been talking a lot lately, and my voice, <coughs> uh, I, don't, I don't want it to fail me, so just allow me to pour the water now. Look, there really are some very special people here tonight, and I want to make a particular point of uh, calling out the family and friends of my own friend, uh, the late Roger Strickland, um, who was uh, an outstanding diplomat, a boy from Querreting, a graduate of Wesley College, and a St Columban from the University of Western Australia. Now, most of you, or many of you at least, uh, know that Roger uh, was killed in an air crash in Vanuatu in 1991 on his <clears throat> pardon me, first posting uh, in the service. Uh, he was also a son to Mary, a husband to Chrissy, who's here, a brother to Helen, and a friend and family member for many people who were present. So let's remember Rog. He, he too was among the best of us. He joined with me in 1988 and had such extraordinary promise. I talk in the book about what the experience of Roger's tragedy taught me about the consular function, but today I actually want to linger instead on um, a very positive um, thing, uh, a very inspiring thing, and uh, it means something to me if you find, uh, find some meaning in the uh, inscription at the front of the book, which is to Roger. Um, the thing about Roger was that he was um, as I say, uh, the best of us. Um, he, um, it too, could have gone such a long way. But what he's left us, among many things, is a line. It's a line which many of us in our in our in our twenties at the time were too self-conscious um, to utter. Um, Roger was confident. He was also, quite frankly, Mary, a bit of a dag in 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 <laughs> in, 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 in some ways. But he. He, uh, just one day, um, when we were walking into the DFAT building in our mid-twenties, turned to me, apropos nothing at all, and said, gosh, didn't say gosh, he said, isn't it a great feeling knowing that we're doing this for Australia? And of course I went, God, what a dag. And I, and I, and, and, and I pushed him in front of me in, into, into the building. But you know, that line has stayed, certainly stayed with me, and it's stayed um, uh, with others. 
Um, there are others who've heard that story and for whom it has meaning. And in speaking like that, he was daring to um, speak of the motivation, if you like, of uh, so many people who do the kind of work that I've tried to write about. Um, there is, it's, not, it's not empty patriotism uh, when we think about Australia. It's a commitment to our fellow members of the Australian community that I think, I think he was talking about. Um, look, I set out to write a book about the men and the women of the, the consular service. Um, I, um, I really felt that it was, it was time that these people, the people within the ranks of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade whose job it is to support their fellow Australians when things go badly wrong overseas, that these people, uh, it was time for these people to be known and uh, for people to listen to their stories and understand a little bit about what they do. The book's title, The Consul, stands for all of them. Uh, those people who've stepped forward to help over the decades and those who continue to do so today. It is also partly my own story because I was proud to lead that group, as you've heard, for a period in the early 2000s. Uh, I was happy to put my voice and my own experience at the disposal of what I think is an important and largely untold story. Now, as you've heard, my own Foreign Service career include, included roles as, you know, a Prime Minister, an advisor, an ambassador in Berlin, all that stuff. Um, and these were, these were probably the kinds of roles that I had in mind and that I aspired to when I first joined the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in my 20s. But I actually chose to write about what many might consider the rough end of diplomacy, um, this consular work, supporting Australians at what is often the worst moments of their lives for two reasons. First, because it's meaningful. Um, it's possible when doing this work to draw a straight line between what you're doing and the reality of people's lives um, with real human beings. And second, because I think just for once, these people actually deserve a bit of positive attention. Now, there, were, there are many other consuls in the book who were with me at the centre or near the point of impact for events like September 11 and the Bali bombing. Um, many of these people, I. I think of as repeat offenders because they've continued to, to do this work. They've been there uh, in the field or at headquarters um, in the midst of subsequent crises from the Indian Ocean tsunami, the 2006 Lebanon uh, evacuation, uh, Fukushima, the Arab Spring, dreadful cases, some of them current, of arbitrary detention, executions of Australians abroad, the downing of MH17, the extraordinary displacement of Australia's expatriate population in the COVID era, the too late but nonetheless courageously conducted evacuation from Kabul, and the current conflict in Ukraine. The last, the last chapter of this book is entitled It Never Ends because it never does. Now, our consuls certainly aren't looking for sympathy. Um, if you know some of them, you know that's not the case. Um, and you know they know who really deserve all that. Um, but many of them find themselves in situations where none of the rest of us uh, would want to be. Um, and I think it's quite appropriate that right now we stop and think about um, the 2002 Bali bombings. The 2002 Bali bombings. Um, 
we're approaching a very big anniversary, the 20th anniversary, and you know our thoughts need to be with those who actually lost people, lost their loved ones. Um, that's where the real attention needs to lie. And it's an anniversary that has meaning for the people of Western Australia, many people in Western Australia, um, uh, of all places. You know, 16 of the 88 Australian citizens who were killed in the Bali bombings were from this state. Seven of those were from one football club. Uh, and so many people in this city know others who were victims. Um, so like I say, that's where the attention needs to lie. I've written a book about um, the group of people who, among many other things, formed the response to, to, to those events. And, you know, I, I think there's, there, there's nothing, um, no better stories to repudiate the notion of, you know, fat cat public servants at cocktail parties than the cases of, <clears throat> pardon me, David Chaplin, who mopped the blood from the floor of the Bali International Medical Centre in the first hours after the bombing and held the hands of the dying. Uh, and Kim Lamb, who had to literally umpire between families who were absolutely convinced that one body, five or six of them, that one body was their own loved one. Uh, the, um, you know, this, I don't want to upset or shock people, but I just want to make a point that this is the kind of thing that sometimes these, um, let's not call them consular officers, these fellow Australians um, have to do. There's many other um, WA connections that are mentioned in this book. There's actually a lot when I start to, to, to think about them. Um, as well as my voice and that of, that of other former consular officers and serving officers, there's also the voices of two um, uh, senior politicians, both of them Western Australian, both of them form, former foreign ministers, and I'm speaking of Julie Bishop and Stephen Smith. They gave their time and, and support to, to this book, one from each side of politics. And I was particularly struck by both of their tales. You know, you'll recall that Julie um, absolutely spearheaded the response to the MH, the Australian response to the MH17 disaster. Um, and I provide a quite full account of that because it's quite extraordinary what she and many others did at that time. Uh, and of course, there were Western Australians who were impacted by, by that event. Um, Stephen Smith tells some interesting reflective stories, and I'll just share a couple of them with you. Um, one is that uh, he, um, he, f he found himself, um, uh, as the foreign minister at the time, uh, that tragically um, an aircraft with the board and executive members of the Sundance Resources Company went down in West Africa. And I learned just before I, I, I stood up here that Rob there um, was... Uh, working for the company, waiting for the aircraft that, that never came. Stephen found himself, you know, uh, for his part, uh, doing this work, supporting, supporting the effort, and uh, working from the Commonwealth par Parliamentary offices here in, in Perth, which, as I understood, he was certainly working from an office which was in the same building as, as Sundance Resources. So he, he found himself dealing with people who he, he knew very, very well. In another case, um, the Marriott Hotel bombing, the second Marriott ho ho Hotel bombing in, in 2011. Uh, Stephen, um, you know, uh, was there in, in support of the immediate in investigation and so on. Found himself at a memorial service uh, in Canberra only uh, a little later and 
paid his respects to a, a woman who had lost, um, lost a loved one. And she thanked him graciously for this and then asked after Stephen's son by name. And Stephen said, how do you know, how do you know who my son is? And she said, we remember. I was a nurse. We were in Canberra. We remember when your son was born premature, um, back all those years ago. You were working for Paul Keating at the time. Steve was listening to this going, my goodness. Um, and we remember you coming in late at night after you work at, at Parliament and visiting your child in the uh, humidity crib. And we all remembered. And we've been watching your career ever since. This is how small Australia is. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm going to have to get this glass of water now. This, this is how small Australia is. And I think Western Australia, I think you guys know better than I, Western Australia is an extreme version of this. Um, the, uh, uh, again, you know, um, again, Stephen Smith, you know, found that uh, somebody who was on board and, again, was tragically killed in a Kokoda air crash in 2011 uh, was the son of a friend of his. You know, it's, it, it's a small place. I've had the experience as consular head of seeing names I know uh, popping up in the caseload case uh, in the course of a, of a morning. Um, Australia's not that big, and WA certainly isn't that big in that sense. Um, we all know something about each other. So, in the end, this really is a story about Australia and about Australians, and it takes place against um, what I'd like to think of as a backing soundtrack. The backing soundtrack is the is the sweep of global history since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the beginning of a, a loop in history, if you like, that seems to be completing itself or at least coming to a culmination point right now in Eastern Europe. Um, and the growing, but when you think back to it, the, 1990, of the, the period of the 1990s, the muffled drumbeat, as I call it, of international terrorism building, um, the jihad as training ground of Bosnia, um, and the extraordinary turning point that was September 11, um, an event that ushered in the war on terror, the Afghanistan and Iraq conflicts, that changed our collective mindset in ways that I feel I'm now only just coming to understand myself, that changed the way we travel, and as I explain in the book, really changed uh, the Australian Consular Service. So it's a book about Australia against an international backdrop, and in the end it's a book about a group of Australians who do this work. And when I think about the, the, the best attributes of our often earthy, pragmatic and yet creative diplomatic and consular officers, they're Australian attributes and I think we can be pretty proud of that. So thanks for listening to me so far. Hopefully we'll be a bit lighter in the Q&A, but I thought I'd set a serious um, benchmark to begin with. Thanks for listening to me. Thank you, um, thank you, Ian. And uh, I must say, I, I did read the, the PDF version of the book that Ian sent me to prepare for this, and um, and you know I did shed a tear too, um, reading through it. Um, I also worked for Sundance, uh, but yeah. I left before the crash. Mm. Uh, but Rob and I, and particularly Peter Canterbury, who ran the company after the whole board and was killed, was supposed to be here tonight, and he was one of the first who signed up, but yeah. he, um, his wife contracted COVID, so he rang me late today to say he couldn't make it. Yeah. So 
um, these things, as you say, Australia is small and we're all impacted. And I remember in my own early career in DFAT reading a cable of the death of a young man called Lindsay Croft, who was the first indigenous Australian to go to Harvard. Uh, he was there on a Harkness Fellowship, driving around in Texas, and the car flipped, um, and, and he was killed. And it was yeah. a very surreal experience when you know somebody, and, 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 and Lindsay had you know, a whole world in front of him. He came from the famous Croft family, and, very closely related to the Perkins family, and you know he could have been today um, a no Pearson. Yeah. Um, and so, anyway, yeah. you said you wanted to move to a lighter note, so we should do that. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll find opportunities. Don't worry. <laughs> you just do what you do. <laughs> um, I want. I'll, I'll, I'll turn quickly. It's not in a particular order, but I have some policy questions because your yep. book also. You know, for a policy wonk, and I know there are many among us here, the students here, talk about the policies of a consular service and a consular policy. And, and I keep coming back, even when I was in the service, but you keep talking about it in the book, about Australians traveling more and more, uh, and a lot of Australians go overseas without travel insurance. And the problems become for you or people like you to resolve, or people like me when I was service, or people like Sue when she was in DFAT and other DFAT colleagues who are here. Um, um, in, during the COVID period, we saw governments around the world do astounding things, mm. impinging on liberties. Should governments or should the Australian government tell Australian citizens, you are not allowed to get a passport or you're not allowed to buy a ticket or you pass a regulation uh, and I'm a lobbyist these days, so I know how to pass legislation. <laughs> with the travel industry, and you go, you can't sell a ticket if it doesn't come with insurance. So um, this was going to be my a, a question down no, the track, but to change the tone a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would love to uh, hear your reflections let's, on that. Let, let, let's let, let's um, let's let's uh, absolutely start there. Um, I, that suggestion of yours w would be a big call. Um, but I think there does need to be a, a serious discussion about it. The, I've read recently that still now, despite everything, one in six Australians do not take out travel insurance uh, when they travel internationally. Now, people often think about travel insurance as something to take out because, I don't know, you know, hotel cancellations, um, flight cancellations, lost luggage, all that kind of stuff. Honestly, that's not why you take out travel insurance. There are people every year, um, parents of those who are hospitalised overseas after, after accidents who have to mortgage their own homes because uh, travel insurance has not been taken out. Uh, um, people die overseas um, more than you think. Uh, and um, getting people home uh, in, in those situations costs a lot of money. Um, the, uh, let's, let's just stop and give you a little bit of context. In the year 2019, which is the last year before COVID impacted travel significantly, 12 million trips made by Australians overseas. That's a hell of a lot of people. And that makes it slightly less surprising, but it's still a bit surprising to most people that that year, five Australians died overseas every 24 hours. Five Australians were hospitalised and came to the attention of the Conscious Service every 24 hours, and three were arrested every day. 
That's that's the churn. Okay, so it's it's not. We've been talking about the big crises, but peacetime is also very busy, uh, extremely busy. Right now, we're we're ramping up as a country back into travel. We're about 50% month on month where we were, and yet, interestingly, more Australians are turning the to the consular service for help than they were in 2019. Um, and I think it's partly about disruption and all that kind of stuff, but um, it's also about expectation. And expectation is one side of what I think of, you know, what I mean by expectation, I mean the expectation that Australians have of what their government will do for them when they're overseas. That's one side of what I think of as an unwritten contract between the travelling public and, and the government. Because um, uh, it's often surprising to people, the Australian government has zero legal obligation to its citizens when they leave the country. There is no right to this stuff that we're talking about. There's no legal right to it. It's all a matter of policy. As, as, as Brendan says, there is one right, and that is that you should be allowed to come home. But let's leave that aside for a moment. And, and so we tend to do as a service what the Australian public think is about right. But there is another side of the bargain. And I think Australians need to, need to keep their expectations in check because people turn to the service for things that they would never turn to the government to do when they're back home. Um, and um, they also need to take out travel insurance. It's nuts if you don't. I, I was only brave enough to ask that question and put that proposition because of what we've seen governments do during COVID. You know, yeah. You've seen governments not giving visas and making a visa requirement coming in that you have evidence of insurance that covers COVID. So yeah. does, does COVID and the expectations of responsibility and the awareness of the risk and the cost of the management of those risks change the game, if you will? I think it, I think it might provide an opportunity. There are, but, uh, and I understand what, what you're saying. I think it might pr provide an opportunity because we, it, it was really a jolting period, the, the period of travel restrictions because of the pandemic. Um, in the end, you know, the Australian authorities actually decided to prioritise or felt they had to prioritise the, the health and security of Australians at home in some cases over those who were, who were overseas and made it very difficult for, for a time. Um, uh, and it created a lot of debate about about where the government's responsibilities should begin and end. So perhaps there is an opportunity um, of a political nature. In the end, it is all about politics. Mm. And a countervailing point is that, as you and I both know, um, new governments aren't inclined to clamp down on services. Um, so I think that, that, that may be uh, an obstacle. Um, here, here in Perth, uh, as, as we've, we've, both of us have discussed, it's, you know, it's a centre of um, mining and oil and gas and, um, and, and mining and oil and gas services. So, so we have, and they're an important part of our economy. A lot of people travel overseas for work. Um, and um, and I, you know, I would like to, to hear from your time, your reflections on how well companies prepare themselves for 
crisis is either mass casualty or whether individual crisis is. Because when I was in the corporate world, I saw an uptick in how people, the preparedness of it. And are there some lessons learned? Uh, I know we have professionals in the room that deal with this thing. Um, any reflections on what you saw um, in that period? Yeah, I, th I, th I think that government and private sector can learn from each other in quite significant ways. And um, the uh, focus that any serious resource company puts into certainly health and safety, but by extension of, of that, arrangements to support its people in the event of crisis overseas um, is pretty strong. Um, it tends to be uh, sort of baked into the culture um, in quite a significant way. It, um, there are some, there are, there's sometimes a bit of, in my observation, a bit of a loss of flexibility um, because the private sector likes to, you know, put it in, in very straight, straight lines. And I think the thing that you could borrow back from government is, is and people won't believe I'm saying this about government. It's true. It's true. It's it's true of this bit of it. There is there is a flexibility and a nimbleness that that um, is able to be applied. Um, but it can be a little bit devil may care too in in, in government. I th I think about um, some of the things that I was allowed to do. You know, I, when I was working the Balkan beat from from Vienna in the mid 90s. You know, driving my car in and out of Sarajevo, and you know. Um, uh, being in cars that drove very fast down Sniper Alley, um, serious mining company wouldn't put people in that in, in in that position. But the Australian government didn't even know I was doing it, and I've, I I wasn't really required to do any reporting. So there are the, the two cultures. I think I could create the perfect culture um, if if uh, out of out of the two sometimes when it comes to uh, concern and support and planning. For, uh, for quite serious contingencies. Great. Um, another vexed policy issue which you tackle in, in the book is, uh, is how families deal when their loved ones, particularly in a captive uh, hostage type situation. And, and, you know, and I think there's two very big policy issues um, around that. One, Australia's very strong policy of not paying ransoms. Not only that, if I'm correct, it's illegal for you to pay a ransom. Uh, uh, if you're an Australian and you pay a ransom to, be, forget, to, to, to get somebody released. And then secondly, the issue of, of whether family raises the public alarm and brings media attention to the case. Um, I know you talk about it in the book. I found it extremely interesting. Um, but maybe to summarize for people, you know, as a pre-say, no spoiler alerts here, but for those who haven't read, read the book, but... Well, yeah, I, I do talk about what you might think of, you know, sort of classic, classic hostage-taking a little bit. Um, yeah, and there have been some ugly situations which have been big formative moments in the history of the service, you know. Even... I was a, I was a junior diplomat at the time. I was, it was well before I took over the consular service. Um, some people may recall the, the terrible case of David Wilson, who was um, uh, kidnapped by the Khmer Rouge in the mid 1990s, and who, with his French and British um, uh, colleagues, were killed. And you know, the the debate and discussion about whether to pay ransom um, 
created a real division, frankly, between the family and the Australian government at the time. And we've had more recent cases that have done exactly the, the same thing. Really difficult stuff. Um, I, uh, there was a review done by a very illustrious diplomat, former diplomat called John McCarthy, that actually recommended that we, as a government, should be a bit more prepared to put people in touch with people who are prepared to do all that if they really want it. Um, but not to associate themselves. I actually spend more time uh, in the book on, I, I'll call the, this hostage diplomacy too, um, on what people more properly refer to as arbitrary detention. In other words, where a state, for political reasons, takes one of our people. And, and look, this is, this is the thing, you know, we have, uh, again, the numbers may surprise you, but at any given time, there's about three to 400 Australians imprisoned long-term outside our, our borders somewhere. I'm guessing not all of them are innocent. Um, I'm, 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 I'm thinking that, that many of them have a, have a case to answer, you know? Um, and there's a standard thing you do in these, these cases. You ensure you do welfare checks if, if, um, if the person's happy about it. Um, you facilitate a bit of contact. You make sure that they've got a list of lawyers and <coughs> local law, deal with it. Um, but there are these other cases. There are these other cases that offend our national sense of justice because it just looks wrong. And, um, you know, the, I've actually interviewed, and they're in the book, and they've, they've become quite good friends, people like Peter Grester, who was held in Egypt, uh, and Kylie Moore Gilbert, who was held by the Iranians for 804 days. Um, the, uh, this, is a, this is another form of hostage-taking. Uh, and we have a couple of very prominent cases in China right right now. And gee, they're difficult cases to, to, to manage. This point about going public or not, whether you have a public campaign or not, I, I think it's a really hard call to make. I don't think there is one rule. I think that I can think of two examples from both extremes. One is Peter Grester, where an in, the international media campaign um, coordinated by a group of family and friends who ran a very smart operation different message tracks for different di di different audiences, collaborated with government, got him out, helped get him out. Um, probably the, 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 the worst example at the other end, and many people will remember this, is that of Chappelle Corby. Um, uh, uh, you know, drugs case in, in Bali in, what, 2005, I want to say, um, where, frankly, I think that the public um, and sometimes media campaign was racist and certainly xenophobic and did Chappelle Corby absolutely no good at all. Um, so we have to be very careful about these things. It, it, in the end, it, it, I think it's about the quality of the campaign. Uh, I think that's, that's the best answer. Um, but look, DFAT and the broader Australian government, you're right to say it is the broader Australian government, um, is dealing with several such cases right now. I'll name them, Cheng Lei in China, um, Dr. Yang Hengjung in, 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 in China, um, Sean Turnell uh, in Myanmar, and Robert Pether in Iraq. You know, they're, they're the ones I know of, maybe there's others. Um, so there's a, lot there's a lot happening and it's hard work for our successors. Um, I had a question on Sean. Sean is a personal friend of mine. Um, we. He helped uh, me and you know the company I was working with in our initial push into Myanmar. Um, I'm sure you met him when you were working in Myanmar too. I think I did. Um, 
And um, again, the, the personal stories and the connections, you know, I was on Facebook Messenger with him about four hours before he was nabbed. Mm. And at that stage, he was very confident that nothing was going to happen to him. Uh, and uh, so put yourself back. You're, you're back, Assistant Secretary, Consular Branch. What, do you be, what would you be advising the government to do in this circumstance? Well, on this arbitrary detention thing, I'd be saying get used to it, it's here to stay, um, and resource up for it. Um, but also, you know, the, 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 the planning um, for the future, it's so complicated now. I mean, how do you scope it? I used to say, you know, when I was doing planning before September 11 came and smacked us, um, uh, we had a sense that we needed to modernise and we, we were building. I used to say that the, 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 the best thing to do was to imagine the worst thing you could think of and get ready for that. And the worst thing I could think of back then was QF1 going down somewhere in Indonesia, you know, uh, 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 by which I mean an Australian aircraft full, full of passengers. Um, and we did a whole lot of preparation around that. The thing about crisis planning is people are always, it's a bit like, generals fighting the last war. People are always getting ready for, ready for the last crisis. It still sharpens you up. It helps get you ready. What would you be thinking about now? You might be thinking about climate change and how that creates all these extreme weather events and how that uh, impacts our people abroad. You might be thinking about conflict. But I think you, you should also be thinking, and I'm determined to introduce a lighter point and tell you a lighter story. So this is my slightly uh, awkward way of doing it. The, the, you should also be thinking about um, where we've been and uh, if you're in the conscious service right now and enjoy for a moment that we've come a long way. And there is one story I want to tell about coming, coming a long way. Um, it's a, uh, I, I want to take you back to um, the year 2000, if I may. Um, Brendan, I was a relatively new head, head of the consular service, um, and you know the uh, hoary older um, manager of con, con ops, um, a bit like the sergeant major of the of, of the group, um, walked in, uh, walked to my office one morning and said, "Oh, a funny thing happened overnight," and I thought, "Oh yeah," because this kind of conversation happened almost every other day. And he said, yeah, we, this is what happened. And he told me the story. So there's this young man, um, about 19, 20 years old, on a cliff uh, in the Mediterranean, hasn't told anybody what he's doing. Um, he's just decided to go for a bit of abseiling. Doesn't speak the local language. And he got himself stuck halfway, halfway down the cliff. Um, no one anywhere near him. So this is the year 2000. And... Uh, so what does a boy do? Amazingly, this guy had a mobile phone, very unusual for the time. So what does a boy do? What does a boy do? He rings his mum. So he, 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 pulled out, he, 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 he pulled out his phone and hit the, hit, hit, hit the, hit the number and um, his mum, in the middle of the night in Adelaide, answered the, answered the call. Uh, and, you know, um, she... I think she probably rang the police force first, and then she got put through to our brand new, we were really proud of this, 24-hour centre. We, we, we had just established a thing called the 24-hour centre, which, which was actually one person on the phone in the third floor through the, through the night. And it was linked in with about half our posts at the time. You could ring in, um, 
you could you could ring in uh, on a free call basis, get diverted through. And, so, and sorry, Ian, I, I need to intervene. It's a very very useful number. I've used it. When, particularly, you and I, both I remember, still remember the number. <laughs> when I was living in Timor, and the dog at my mother-in-law's house bit me, I used that number to get to the Australian Air, the the the, the, the Australian Field Hospital yep. to get administered with post rabies injections. Oh so. my God! <laughs> there you go. I should have put that in the book. Um, the, 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 so, anyway, this this, um, this 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 mother gets through to the to the centre, um, and he, he, the, the guy on on deck hears the, the story, takes the number, rings young man on on cliff. Um, he told me he told me the next morning that he told him he asked him just to hang in there, which I think. <laughs> Wasn't entirely appropriate, but never mind. Um, and uh, you know, they mobilised the embassy. A chopper was was brought in, and you know, the young man was, <clears throat> pardon me, pulled 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 off the cliff. We were amazed about this at the time. Um, it, it was well, the mobile phone was really unusual. Um, uh, it was only actually the Bali bombing when I remember that as being a moment when people had mobile phones. Two years later, and in, in two thousand two. But also this standing centre, because until until then, if you cast your mind back, an embassy was a place you kind of you turned up during the day, during working hours, um, if you if you wanted attention and support, uh, if you found yourself out of funds, you waited for days for the bank transfer to come through. Um, but these were the days when we wrote postcards and had travellers checks and didn't make phone calls. Um, that's where we've come from, and we used to have a service that was about right for that. I happened to be running it at a time where we thought, geez, we've got to catch up. Um, and this is, this is the point. There has been the communications revolution, there has been the force of jihadism, there's been all this stuff happen over the course of this period. And the conscious service has sometimes been ahead of it, and it's sometimes been a little bit behind. Um, so I think having a sense that you're part of an historical trajectory, uh, an evolution, is kind of important. And one of the gratifying things about writing this book is I've had a bit, fair bit of feedback from people who do this work um, to exactly that effect. So that's nice. While, while, you're on, uh, while you're on mobile phones, I love the story about Bruce. You've got to tell them about the story about Bruce. Oh, every tragedy has a complete nincompoop. Um, <laughs> the, 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 uh, he had, had to be called Bruce. <laughs> I think I called him Bruce because I didn't think, feel I could mention his real name. I, oh, think, okay. that, that, I, think, I think that's what it, what it was. Um, yeah, I mean, this a lovely colleague called Bill Jackson who ran Consular Operations, you know, during those extraordinarily chaotic and very difficult days in the um, first week or so after the Bali bombing. It's a jigsaw, right? You've, you've got information about who was there and you're trying to work out who wasn't and let's not even get into the disaster victim identification process because it's just so awful. Um, but there's a jigsaw puzzle and you're trying to put it through and there's a couple of names that, that take a while to, to clear and to, and, and to sort out. And Bill Jackson was completely preoccupied with Bruce, we'll call him, um, uh, who everyone knew was kind of there because friends had reported it, had seen, seen him. Um, but no evidence had been found, um, and the assumption, and I think I might have said to Bill, listen, I'm sorry, mate, but th th that guy's gone, and his remains are going to be found at some point, but uh, Bill said, oh, I think I'm just going to keep trying, and every morning he'd 
he'd ring this number. And I kid you not, two weeks after, after, after the bombing, Bruce answered the phone. And, um, and uh, Bill said, mate, where have you been? He said, oh, yeah, I was there. I jumped on, a, jumped on one of those flights. Qantas was chartering flights and it was chaos. It, 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 yeah, and, uh, yeah, I came home. I've been wandering around a bit. Um, uh, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, why? <laughs> and, and Bill said, your parents are planning a memorial service, mate. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, I don't talk to my parents that often. Maybe I'll give them a ring then. <laughs> we had another one after September 11, which was even worse. But, I, I, but you know, it, it, there are these people. <laughs> <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting line. Yeah, that, that one was not so funny. Yeah. 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 Um, um, so we're back to Bali bombing. I mean, I don't, in, you know, you, you cover it quite a bit in your book, but I want to ask you sort of a, a little bit of a deeper question. You know, that, that, that um, I think you mentioned in the book and everybody referred to it as such, you know, as Australia's September 11. Um, so right. Hel Helen, Strick Helen Strickland is just causing trouble. Don't worry. <laughs> on cue, as we were talking about. It's one of those days of Strickland. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brian. No problem. Um, you know that. You know, reading through those pages where you talk about you know being woken up in the middle of the night and you know and uh, you know the machinations of you know the the consul general in in Bali and and all of that. Was, you know. Was, extremely, you know, unfortunately gripping reading. Um, but you kind of wander around in the book. You don't get to the, this particular point. What, I have three questions. You know, what did you learn about yourself hmm. through that crisis? What did you learn about your colleagues? And what did you learn about the Australian mindset? Um, what, do you what do you learn about yourself? Um, you learn that you're a product of experience. Um, and uh, the thing I learned about myself is what I, I learned about my colleagues and my, my, my fellow Australians, which is that we might irritate the life out of each other um, in normal times. But when there's a big, serious crisis to deal with, we're actually pretty pragmatic. We don't get interested in you know, territory and jurisdiction. We just get on with it. Um, I, I think that's a that's a terrific thing. Um, I've never had a jurisdictional problem. I, people who've worked with me in the room know that I don't operate like that. But I think many Australians are, are, are like that too. As I said in the book, there is this curious steadying thing that actually happens in the middle of a, a crisis when you're responsible for running it. Um, uh, there's a calming thing. There's, I notice that people become, generally speaking, there's sometimes exceptions, generally speaking, people become quite polite and considered and thoughtful in the way they talk to each other. Because um, there's a sudden realisation we've got to get this right. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly conscious of deliberately being calm because you've got to, you, you know, you've got, to, you've, you've got to radiate that. But I think a lot of people are doing that. Um, the importance of family and support, ex you know, extraordinary support from Roxanne, who's here, um, I think is fundamental to sort of keeping that centre. Um, resting yourself. I mean, uh, it doesn't tend to be the troops who expire, the people at more junior level who you can roster on and do all that sort of stuff. It tends to be more senior in the middle, middle level people who are suddenly in the middle of a, of a crisis meeting 72 hours into the 
into the event start talking gibberish. You know, it, it kind of happens because people have lost so much sleep. So resting yourself and pacing yourself is important. But as for Australia, I mean, what that whole exercise you ask about Bali tells us about Australia is that um, we have an important role sometimes to play in the region because let's not think that this the Bali operation was about evacuating Australia, Australians from, from Indonesia. We evacuated everybody to Australian hospitals. We evacuated Indonesians, Balinesian, Balinese Bechak drivers um, uh, to, to, to Australia because quite frankly you couldn't tell ethnicity, never mind nationality, but also because and actually this was the first reason, we were the team who were equipped to do it. To, to, um, to change the tune a bit, you, you, you know, as, as some of us in the room are political nerds, you, you talk about your relationships uh, and your dealings with you know, senior leadership in, in Australia and, and that reminded me of, of Sue and her book and, and she talks about, and we did a launching, what, two years ago? So, um, being hauled in to see Gough Whitlam and to be asked about Timor. Um, and you, you talk about being hauled uh, into uh, to see uh, Prime Minister Howard about, I think initially it was about Bali, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the, yeah. What, we, what we'd known through the intelligence and what we said in the travel advice. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess you, 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 you talk about it in the book about dealing with different um, prime ministers and the like, and that was the joke earlier in the, in the evening if, if people didn't read the book. Um, uh, Ian talks about getting a call from Julia and Julia, the Julia, Julia Gillard, and he, and, and he rings, she rings uh, Ian, I think, um, and goes, yeah. hi Ian, it's Julia. So that's yeah. right. that was and, the And that I was very, the very nearly, I was, on, I was having breakfast with Roxanne on the, on the um, balcony at Port Moresby, and I very nearly said, sorry, Julia, who? And then I, ah, good morning, Prime Minister. How can I? So then it was, hi Ian, it's not Julia, so anyway. Um, it was an in-joke at the time, so now it's, everyone knows what's the background. Um, so, and, and, as you've dealt with the leadership, um, what, what kind of traits did you most appreciate from ministers or in, certain, in, the, in those rare occasions with uh, prime ministers in dealing with, in dealing with your consular duties? I think I appreciated the things that everyone appreciates about other people, you know, courtesy and, um, and respect. And, um, I, I lumped together um, uh, in this respect two Prime Ministers who I don't think would necessarily like to be lumped together, namely John Howard and Julia Gillard, um, because they have in common um, uh, uh, a seriously courteous, respectful approach in their everyday dealings with um, individuals no matter where they are in, in, in the system. Don't think I'm political, and don't try to don't try to guess how I voted last time from reading this book. Uh, I um, uh, I'm um, I'm just appreciative if you set the politics aside of just those attributes I mentioned. Um, and yeah, I got it from from Howard. I, I certainly did at a moment where he was under a great deal of political pressure because the the the. the the drumbeats were, were building, you know, what did Australia know? How had we failed the Australian people? What had we not told the Australian people through the travel advice? This is in the wake of, of Bali. Truth was, we had 
we were clean, you know, we'd done, every, we'd done our best. But um, uh, I got hauled up into, into the office and he quizzed me for an hour and curiously as I walked down the corridor, shaken by this very early experience in my late 30s, early 40s, can't remember, um, uh, I have the Prime Minister call me back in, Mr Kemish, and he gives me a glass of water and says, y y you do know I'm not having a go at you, don't you? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to inform myself. And I think, yeah, not everyone would do that. That's a good point to, uh, to end our fireside chat and open it up to the audience. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, but I'm sure there's many that have, those who have read the book or have not read the book and, and are still dying to ask uh, Ian some questions. So, There's always one. Someone needs to start. Josh. Just introduce yourself briefly. Yeah, it's for the um, recording, right? Yeah. Josh Thurlow. Yep, it is Josh. Josh Thurlow. Ian, just a, a quick question around you spoke earlier about the expectations of Australians when they're overseas. Hmm. No, I don't think it's right. And where does it come from? I'm not sure we're any worse than anybody else. I mean, you know, we, I, I, I um, again, I refer to the book to what, to what I used to call the, the Mutual Therapy Club, which is the group of five Eyes nations, you know, UK, US, Canada, New Zealand and ourselves. We'd come together every year to, to talk about what we're doing. It was quite a serious discussion, but a bit of it, at least over a drink, was you wouldn't believe what happened to me. Oh my God! You know, there was there was a lot of, a lot of that kind of, of com comparison, and expectation management was a problem for all of us. Um, uh, look, the truth is, most Australians are actually pretty good travellers and have expectations reasonably in 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 place. But there are some, and you know, there are, for example, the people who. Um, refused to get out of um, places like Libya and Egypt during the Arab Spring um, and then clamoured for a, an evacuation and the evacuation flights were put in, charter, charter aircraft, and when, when boarding the flight they asked whether they'd earn frequent flyer points. You know, there, 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 there are some people like that, but we're not, we're not all like that. Um, the, uh, and I, you know, I think that, that is very much the, the minority. Are expectations out of whack? They are a bit. They've increased a lot over time. They probably should have increased a bit. I, don't, I think Australians deserve a better service than the one we had in the 1980s. Um, but I, I, I think part of the problem is that the consular service has actually stepped in and done a good job again and again and again. And every time it does, particularly in a high-profile situation, up goes the bar of expectations. It's, it's pretty hard. Julie, Julie Bishop actually just tried to bring the expectations back down at one point as foreign minister. The trouble is politics gets in the way. People, governments are eager to respond. Should work.
It, it, thank you, Des. It, it, uh, it, it really does. I, I refer jokingly to the, the arrangements with the, with the Five Eyes partners, and they are often the more traditional partners we go to, but they're by no means the only one. We actually, by the way, have a very special arrangement and have done for many years uh, with the Canadian Foreign Service. Um, largely, it, it, It's a nice fit because the Canadians tend to be uh, networked heavily and you know, have good representation in parts of the world where we don't. Um, and vice versa. So we're a bit more Asia-Pacific and they're a bit more you know, Latin America and perhaps Africa. Um, uh, so we actually have a, a formal uh, agreement to cover each other, for each other's citizens in this case, and we're comparable levels of service. By the way, the, I think the still current version of that memorandum of, of understanding between Australia and Canada uh, was signed by me and my Canadian counterpart, I think, I, I, let's say it is, because it makes the story better. Um, the, 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 um, and uh, it was actually signed on a bar in London, um, a bar of a pub in London, and because my Canadian ins insisted we do it that way, my Canadian colleague, and it was only on the way back to Australia that I realised that I'd signed for Canada and he'd signed for Australia. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm not sure anyone's noticed yet, but let's, let, let's see. So, you know, the... the um, we have those sorts of arrangements, but when these multifaceted big crises, and I think of that huge evacuation, multinational evacuation from Lebanon in 2006, everybody's working with everybody else. Um, you know, the boats that were leaving uh, um, Beirut um, heading for Cyprus, which was the first stage that most people took on that, that, that evacuation, the Australian chartered boats had all sorts of nationalities on them. I mean, it was just what you did. Um, and everyone's staying in touch with every, everybody else. I think the, the current consular service is stepping out well beyond the old traditional partners. And Kate Logan, who's running it now, to told me recently that um, she's learnt that the Swiss are actually charging um, their, their consular clients for simple services, which is an interesting idea. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, g'day, Liz Brennan. Um, so I was a oh, volunteer, an Aussie volunteer when Ian was in PNG, and yeah. I've worked back there for the last decade. So my question is kind of two parts, Ian, um, in that I'd be really interested in your reflections having grown up in PNG, heading back there, what it was like during, you know, coming back post-independence. And the second question, what it's like being someone like Monkey Lopez and that, um, you know, that credit, that how that influenced your leadership in PNG as well? Oh, thanks, Liz. Um, and thanks for your work in Papua New Guinea. I do like to talk about Papua New Guinea. But m most Australians struggle, and it's an interesting thing to talk about here in Western Australia, but most, most Australians struggle to, to name our closest neighbouring country. Um, Papua New Guinea is 3.6 kilometres from the nearest Australian post office. There is, there, is, there is no argument. It's only Papua New Guinea that is our closest neighbour. It's not New Zealand. It's not Indonesia. It, um, so you might be closer to some of those here, but nonetheless, closest literally to, to Australia. It's PNG. Um, I did grow up there. Uh, I grew up there pre-independence. And when um, I took Roxanne there as High Commissioner in 2010, at the very beginning of, of 2010, many deca decades after I'd left as a child, 
to be honest about it, I was a little bit shy about mentioning that I'd grown up there because I had in my head that I didn't, I'd grown up there pre-independence. I didn't want people to think that I was, I had some colonial attitude to the place, that I wanted to take them back there. I dropped all that hesitation very fast because Papua New Guineans re responded to the knowledge that I had done time there and had grown up there and could speak, still speak the language, albeit as a child. My tutor told me that I had rather childish pigeon. Um, the, 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 uh, uh, they resp re responded very, very positively to that. And you use the phrase mangilo place, which means, you know, literally a monkey from here, but it means a kid from around here, a kid from here. You know, people used to publicly refer to me as that, which was actually quite affectionate and gratifying. And I, did un I, I began to understand that despite it being childhood, it actually did give me a perspective on the place. And, you know, I didn't need to learn, I don't think, and I think sometimes others do, that our influence among our neighbouring countries does not rest on dollars and aid programs. You don't buy influence with a big aid program. You get it with friendship and partnership. So, yeah, that's what I'd say. Oh, rugby league. Every, <laughs> my God, every Papua New Guinean is either a maroon or a blue. It's unbelievable. Um, hello, um, my name's Nee. I'm a student at University of Western Australia. Uh, I have some question not really related to the book, but uh, based on your uh, experience working uh, in those crises and international development, also for non profit sector, um, what would be your reflection of different approaches for those crises, uh, especially the differences between masculine approach and feminist approach? for crisis in in the region yeah yes um, look I, I, I do understand your, your, your question I think um, and there, I think there has part of the reason part of the reason I think the uh, you know a, a service like the Australian Foreign Service has stayed strong has freshened up um, got better over time has been that um, women are running the show or um, are very much in, the, in, in leadership in, in the network these days. Now, I mentioned Sue as a pathfinder or, or a trailblazer. Um, you know, we find ourselves now in a situation where the foreign minister, the secretary of the department, and a very significant proportion of um, our ambassadors and uh, leadership of the organisation of women. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I think it, it introduces a whole... It's, it's, it's not about fairness in my mind, it's actually about making the, the organisation stronger, um, if you think, can think about it like that, because the organisation gets stronger because of that diversity of, um, of view and of thinking that, that comes with all that. Um, so I think... I, I reflect on how the um, women and men who worked with me in the region um, dealt with situations, and I think the mix made us, certainly at the High Commission in Port Moresby, made us really strong. So I'd say that I'd need to think much more deeply about feminisation and, and masculinity within crisis response. I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer that just yet, but I'll think about it.
Thank you. Oh no, hang on. Her, Her Excellency over here needs, wants to ask you a question. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just actually going to just reflect on a uh, amplifying, if, if you like, your, yeah, your book. You know, when I was um, when I was High Commissioner in Bangladesh, we had three young Australian gold smugglers in jail in Bangladesh, uh, and they had been met somebody in a pub in Sydney who had said, "Oh, we need some gold, take it into Bangladesh." You know, they've, they've, there's no there's no control. You can go straight in there. Here's five thousand dollars. You know, these these young innocents had arrived with gold in various parts of their anatomy. And of course, the Bangladeshis caught them all, put them in jail. So, so then there was a bit of an outcry. Their parents started making a fuss about what the embassy was doing and what the government was doing about trying to spring them. Why, why were they in jail and so on and so forth? And uh, anyway, it got to the stage where the, the foreign minister uh, said, Sue, I think you as, 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 I know the consul's looking after this, that's his job, but I think you as consul, as uh, high commissioner, you should go in and see these guys. And uh, you know, show that you did that from the, the highest level that we're really taking care of them. So I went in there. Anyway, there are these three blokes. So, first bloke fell immediately in lust with me. He, I, I was the first. He white was only woman. human. <laughs> I was the first white woman he'd seen in two years. This was two years into their sentence, and I was bombarded with increasingly pornographic letters from the jail. <laughs> That was the first one. The second one had found a religion, and he thought his job in there was to convert all these heathens to the right religion, and he didn't want taking out thank you. He was quite happy fulfilling this God-given role. And it was the third one. It was just a simple chap, and he said he'd just be so pleased to get out, and anything we could do with it for him was just lovely, you know? So you had these three, these three, three things we had. So um, I fronted the, the, uh, the home minister on the golf course, and said, so these blokes have been in there a bit of a long time. Do you think it's about time we should give them a pardon? And he said, come and see me and, and just have a look at the plans that I have for building a new hospital in my village. Uh. And I understand the Australian government has some money that you can spend on development mm. projects like this. And perhaps you'd like to come see me in my office. Well, we did have some money for uh, such events. And actually, it was legitimate. It, yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. And uh, the, the three blokes got sprung. Yeah. So, you know, that's... Well, yes, money for gold, as it were, yes. But the, if the pornographic letters were the extraordinary thing. I didn't preserve any of them, you know. I really should have spoken to you before I wrote this book. <laughs> if I'd known you were writing the book, I'd have told you about this one. We can always count on you, Sue, for the funniest anecdotes of the day. Um, so we're coming to the end of our you know, interesting discussion Ian, and of course, we'll, you know, those who are coming to dinner can, can, can keep quizzing you. Um, but in terms of looking forward, and, and, and you, cover, you cover this in the book, um, you, you've had a chance to reflect, you know, the, the, at least the recent history of consular practice in Australia. You've, you've talked to, you know, my good friend Kate, uh, whom I joined yeah, DFAT with, um, who's running the division now. Um, so, you know, if, if, if the government were to, you know, Penny Wong were to call you one day and go, hi, and it's Penny, can you do a review of our consular service? Can you tell me what else we can do? What are the three things you would say to her? Three things. 
Interesting thing is, I actually had a conversation with Penny um, uh, uh, within the last week and did make did make one point about the conscious service. But the the uh, I um, uh, I think we covered a, a, a bit of it before. I think um, uh, stepping back and anticipating the new world, uh, I think, is really important from a contingency planning perspective. I think the crises and the events of the next decade will look very different to to the last couple of decades, and it, it takes some deep thought um, to try and anticipate what that looks like. So I think that need, and that I think needs resourcing. Um, I think I think there is this point about expectation. I think that governments do have to try and grapple with that and um, be educative. Maybe go so far as Brendan would propose and um, insist that they have travel insurance before they travel. Um, I think that, that needs a look at. But my last bit of advice was, would be don't batten it down too hard because in the end, I think the strength of the Australian Consular Service rests on the, um, uh, the individuals within it, the kind of people they recruit and their ability to kind of move flexibly uh, within the system because you need that because you, you simply cannot in the end 100% anticipate um, what the next crisis is um, and keep a sense of humour because a lot of funny things happen and despite the sometimes gloomy talk tonight there's some funny moments in the book. Great, thank you. And unless there are any more last questions, can I also do the customary thing and invite Molly? I think the battery, okay, no, sorry. No, you're back. Before we, we, we turn off the lights, um, I know that there are, and thanks to your very assiduous efforts in, in sort of helping us promote the event, we have quite a few people here who are not members. Um, you know, these are the kinds of events, if, you, if it's the first time you've, you've come to an AIIA, um, not all the events are as, you know, we have high, as high quality speaker as, as Ian, but we do get great speakers. We, you know, we have the governor, um, hopefully, uh, the, sorry, the former governor of the state of Western Australia, who is no stranger to foreign policy, as you will, you will imagine. Um, we have uh, some good events coming up to the end of, end of the year, uh, most of them live, most of them here but also we have some really interesting webinars coming up. So um, please join. It doesn't cost an arm and a leg. You won't become a consular client by joining. Um, and you can stay in touch. We'll keep you up to date with the events. Uh, and uh, it's good fun. Um, that's the kind of the promo done. Um, from my perspective, thank you, Ian, for making that phone call a few months ago to say, I wanted to launch my book, Can You Help? 
I hope you have found the audience and, and the state of Western Australia engaging. And I wish you great sales and lots of royalty checks from WA. Thank you. Thank you so much to Brendan. I really, really appreciate it. Now, it isn't all about book sales and royalty checks, but I will be signing books and you can buy them outside. Yeah. <laughs>